We'll begin our worship by singing to God's praise in Psalm 95. Psalm 95 in the Scottish Psalter. And we're singing uh, from the beginning, uh, verses 1 to 6. And that's on page 357 of the handbook of, of the Psalmbooks. Psalm 95 from the beginning. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Come, let us everyone a joyful noise make to the rock of our salvation. So we'll sing verses 1 to 6 and we'll stand to sing to God's praise. Let's unite our hearts in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father and Almighty God, we come before you, the mighty creator of the heavens and the earth. And as we have sung in that first psalm, all praise, all glory and all worship is to you. For you are the one who is the creator of all good things. You are the God of creation and you are also, Lord, the God of redemption. And we praise you, Lord, for the plans in which you had placed from eternity to send your Son into this world to die for sinners on the cross, 
And Lord, we praise you because of who you are, that you are a covenant-keeping God, that what you say in your word is true, and that the promises that are contained in scriptures are for our gifts for us to, to hold on to and cling to. We pray, Lord, uh, and give you thanks for who you are and what you have done. That you are a God who is a God of justice. That you are a God who is a God of love and mercy and grace. But Lord, we know that you are a God that does not change. That you are not uh, blown from side to side, from issue to issue, uh, as the wind blows. But rather you are steadfast, immovable, that your faithfulness extends from generation to generation and that in that we have great confidence because when we consider man, what is there but the heart of man that from it comes all these deceitful things and that whose desire is in and of themselves. And we see that from the broken world around us. We see that even as it has happened before in your word and is described there, that what is good then is called evil by man, and what is indeed evil is then called good by man. And that everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And there is no concern for your word, for the truth, and there is no concern uh, for our souls and for eternity but rather we see around us a dark generation where your word is not uh, obeyed where your word is trampled upon underfoot by both those who are lawmakers and uh, those who are living in our communities and even in some of our churches Lord we do call upon you to be merciful to us as a nation and as a church We pray especially for your church here in North Keswick and Knockbain. We pray and we uh, give you thanks, Lord, for your servant whom you've set over us, uh, Mr. Rennick. We are thankful for his ministry here every week. And we pray that you will be with him as he is preaching in Rasi and that you will grant him those journey mercies uh, back as you have watched over him. We pray that you will continue to help him and all the work that he does and all the labours that he does in this congregation and in this community. For Lord, it is our desire as uh, people of this congregation and as followers of you that your name will be known throughout our land and throughout our communities and neighbourhoods. And Lord, we do continue to pray that more will come to be under your word here, under the gospel, that you, O Lord, will reveal the truth to them that you will shine light into the dark places of our hearts. And Lord, we confess that we need that in and of ourselves as well. Whether we profess your name or not, we need you to search us and to know us, to reveal to us our continual need of you, that we may repent and turn to you, not just once, but that we would make that a continual effort in our own lives. We're thankful that you have sent your spirit to be a help to us that indeed Christ even is the author and the finisher of our faith and that we can take comfort in these things we pray Lord for our number who are unwell at the moment and who are unable to make it 
We give thanks that uh, we can use technology in a small way to be uh, united in, in part. But Lord, we pray uh, for those especially that we desire to be here but are unable to, do, to be so. We pray that your spirit will minister to them especially. Be near to them, draw near to them, make them aware of your presence. We pray that you will continue with us in this service today. I pray that you will help me as we open your word and as I uh, speak the truth from it. Help me, Lord, to uh, speak uh, what is true and what is said of your word. For we know that your word is life-giving, it is life-changing, it is life-saving. And we pray that that will be the case for all of us in here this morning and this afternoon. We give you thanks, Lord, for uh, our young people, for the young in our congregation, the babies that have just been born recently. We give you thanks for these good and perfect gifts that come from you. And we pray that you will help us as a congregation to help to raise these uh, children and their parents as well to know you and to fear you and to love you and to serve you. We ask that you'll go with us now and all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'm just going to say something to uh, to the young folk and I wonder if you can guess what my uh, topic might be today. Uh, I do want to speak about uh, James, our uh, little baby boy. So myself and Marion uh, had a baby boy three weeks ago today and we rejoice and give thanks to God for his safe arrival. And indeed, even since then, we've had further uh, good news in the congregation, uh, Stephen and uh, Hannah as well, with the, the birth of their boy, and we give thanks for that. And we're thankful for the congregation. Uh, I just want to say that as well, that we're thankful for your kindness, for all the messages and prayers and generosity of everyone uh, to us. Um, but I just want to share something to you about James. The poor boy's only three weeks old and he's already getting used in a children's address. But um, hopefully you'll forgive me for this. But I actually want to tell you about one day after we got back from the hospital, I found that James had a card delivered to him. A very special letter in the post that had a card and a wee booklet. It wasn't addressed to me or to his mum, it was addressed to, to James himself. And it was the very first thing that he received and what I got was this little card and this little booklet called the Shorter Catechism. Now I'm just going to read you this uh, card. It's from uh, a friend of ours, an elder in our previous congregation. I'll just read a, a short part from it. Welcome, James Macaulay Gray, into the big wide world that our God created. My name is Angus and I hope that it will be not too long before we can meet and have a good chat. I am sending you a wee book to help you understand some of the things that your parents will try to teach you. They might find it difficult to explain things to someone as young as you are. But my mummy used to teach me and my brothers from the original version of the enclosed booklet. And it made it easier for me to understand about God and myself and others when I was young and then when I progressed to middle and then old age. Don't let Daddy feed you on the larger catechism, the doctrines of the Council of Trent, just yet. Tell him you want to grow on milk first, and that you will then be able to get your teeth into tougher meat later. 
Now try and get some sleep and be sure to let your parents have some rest now and again. My love to yourself and your parents too, from Angus. Now that was a, a lovely card that was sent and the booklet that was given was, is the Shorter Catechism. This one's in modern English. Um, and it's a really helpful booklet for us and for you because it really helps us understand a lot of what's in the Bible and it takes it and puts it into small chunks, uh, questions and answers. For example, one of the first questions it asks is what's man's primary purpose? Man's primary purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And then it's what does the Bible teach us? Well, the Bible principally or primarily teaches us what we must believe about God and what God requires of us. Now, it's really good to ask questions. And I hope that you will ask questions as you get older and as you sing psalms in the church and as we read and as you hear uh, the Bible being preached, that you would ask your mums and dads and your grannies and grandpas or others in your family about what is being taught about God. Because it's really important that this little booklet contains some of the most important questions we can ask in our lives. And it's really important for us to know that from a young age, but it's also really beneficial to us once we get older, and even older to your your parents or even to your grandparents' age. Now, I hope that your mums and your dads, or your grands and your grandpas, whoever looks after you, it will be reading the Bible with you and teaching what the Bible tells us about things and praying with you. But as you get older, never be afraid to be asking questions. Um, Not only that, but the minister and the elders and others in the congregation who help, maybe those in Sunday school and other Christians, we are also here to help as well. So if you have questions, you can ask us too. Just see maybe the Sunday school teachers thinking, what are you doing telling them to ask us questions just before we go up to Sunday school? But no, we're we're all here to help each other because we're one big part of a family in the church. And we saw that last week with... Um, baptism being, uh, we have uh, young Erica being baptised into what is the covenant family of the church because we are uh, united as a family in this congregation and it's good for us to be able to learn from each other and there's nobody who's uh, useless that can't able to teach and help and guide other believers no matter how old we get uh, we do have a purpose as one body in Christ so remember that, and I hope that uh, the short catechism, although James has got his just after a few days old, uh, that you maybe have your own version, or your mums or dads can get you one, and you can get started on these questions and answers. So may the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Uh, we're going to sing again to God's praise in this time in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, and that's in the Sing Psalms on page 159. Uh, sing Sam's version of Psalm 119 and it's at verse 33 teach me to follow your decrees then I will keep them to the end give insight and I'll keep your law with all my heart to it attend and this section it's talking about indeed all of Psalm 119 talks about the word of God and what a treasure it is for us and think especially upon what we've just thought about there uh, about learning about God from the word and learning about his decrees and his statutes and his laws and his word which is all perfect so we'll sing this psalm to God's praise Psalm 119 from verse 33 and we'll stand to sing
We'll now read from God's Word in the Gospel according to Luke and at chapter 16. Luke and at chapter 16 and we'll read the, the full chapter here. He, that is Jesus, also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can go no longer for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to him, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it, fall, so when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a, very, in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in your unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you what, uh, that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard the, all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, 
child remember that in your lifetime receive that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish and besides all this between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us and he said then I beg you father to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment but Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets let them hear them and he said no father Abraham but if someone goes to them from the dead they will repent he said to him if they do not hear Moses and the prophets neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead Amen and may God bless that reading of his word we're going to sing again to God's praise this time in Psalm 49 Psalm 49 and that is in the Scottish Psalter and it's a psalm which we maybe don't sing often and um, it's actually we find that some psalms are, are psalms of praise some are some are prayers uh, this one is actually uh, a sermon almost you hear how it starts hear this all people and give ear in all the world that dwell both low and high both rich and poor my mouth shall wisdom tell and then it goes on to speak about the ones who trust in wealth and what that uh, and that their confidence is in that but ultimately none of it can be used to redeem them none of it can be used to help when they die and that's the the solemn nature of what we've just read in, in the gospel and the psalm here speaks of this as well so we'll stand and we'll sing uh, this part of psalm 49 verses 1 to 9 and we'll sing to god's praise
So turning for a short time now to the scripture that we read in Luke chapter 16. And we have as a text here from the end of the chapter. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither shall they be con- or neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now although that's the text and that's at the end of this uh, section of the verse, I'm actually going to take uh, this uh, chunk of the chapter that deals with the rich man and Lazarus. And whilst that is the text and we'll end up there at the end, we're going to work our way through this parable. And by way of introduction, this parable in one sense uh, stands unique in the Bible. It is entirely unique in the sense that it is the only passage that describes the feelings of the unconverted after they have died. And therefore I think it deserves our special attention, even if you have heard it before. Another unique part of this parable is that it names uh, those who are the characters in it, or one of them anyway, it names Lazarus. The rich man is not named, and we'll find out why later on. Um, But this unique fact has led some to say, and some to think, that this isn't in fact a parable. This is actually a historic account that is given. Now, I'm not going to get into the debate of that just now, but I think it is worth saying that um, I don't think it's a historical account. I would say that it's a parable. However, just because this specific circumstances and situation that we have described here in the parable is not a historical account, I do, however, believe that there have been many, many similar scenarios over the years of people who are similar situations to this rich man and similar situations to this Lazarus who in their life and in death and and solemnly in eternity have experienced the same uh, situation. Now, the purpose of this parable that Jesus has is really for us to to learn a, a lesson and what we should do is to ensure that we are not like this rich man. Um, this parable also in some respects is not like some of the other ones that have uh, maybe hidden meanings or uh, symbolism. Think of the sword and the seed. There's uh, parts of that that are maybe not straightforward to understand. And indeed some of the disciples after the parables of Jesus, they, they have to ask him, what does this mean? But here we don't have a parable where there's confusion here or there's maybe some subtleties or some symbolism or something that's unclear. Here we have something that is completely clear. We have life and death. We have eternity. We have heaven and hell. So I hope that the Lord will help us through this passage today. And it's important as well before we kind of dive into it and and go through it that we acknowledge what context that this is spoken in. Now I read the full chapter because at the start of the chapter there is a parable spoken about this dishonest manager. Uh, And that is Christ speaking to his disciples. But here we get to this parable uh, which is almost a a kind of mirror of that or the, the, the twin of that one if you like. That is speaking to the Pharisees who were hearing Uh, and in the presence of Jesus and with whom wealth and money was a huge problem and whilst this parable does ultimately deal with people who believe and people who don't believe people who are faithful and who are not faithful there is a key message here concerning money and wealth 
And Christ is teaching us here that actually what you and I do with that, it really does matter. What you and I do with wealth and money in our lives really does matter. And there's a very important verse that links these two parables, and that is in uh, verse 13 that talks about no servant can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. And whilst there were some unique points that I mentioned earlier, there are some similarities with this message, because Christ has preached this message before. He has spoken both in parables and also to those who he has encountered, if you think of the the rich young ruler uh, as being one of them, and to those that he spoke about uh, for what profit a man that if he gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. And this is a message that is contained right throughout Scripture as well. Even go back into the Old Testament, back into Proverbs, we find out that the ones who trust in money will fall. But the ones who trust in the Lord will reap their reward. And I think we want to ask as well, just before we get into this, about what exactly is meant by this money that, we, that, uh, that this passage refers to, people having their trust in money. Well, in the AV, you might have heard the word mammon. So those who you cannot serve God and mammon, and this word money, and it actually it's a comprehensive word for all kinds of possessions, earnings, gains, wealth, riches, basically anything in the form of serving and pursuing and chasing after these things in life. So yes, Christ is speaking to the Pharisees, with whom this was a real big issue, but it is also important for us to note how we use our wealth and our attitudes to us. Because it's one thing that this parable makes clear. It's that that will determine our destiny in eternity. How we approach money and our attitudes to it, it has that big an impact that it will affect our eternity. So with that in mind, there are just three headings that we're going to uh, consider today. We're going to look at both the rich man and Lazarus. But we're going to look at them under their lives, their deaths, and their eternal destination. So we're looking at life, death, and eternity in respect of all, uh, of, sorry, of both of these men. Now, if we start with the life of this rich man, we see in the passage that he is clothed in purple or fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. Now what we take from this is that he just he really looked after himself. He had the finest linen, purple being a really expensive dye in, in those times, uh, usually reserved for royalty. He had the best of gear when it came to what he wore, and when it came to what he ate, he feasted sumptuously, not just the occasional feast or banquet, but every single day. And no doubt he wouldn't have been feasting alone. He would have had plenty of pals, plenty of people he was entertaining, living for himself, living in the moment. And ultimately, he was rich. That's what the, the, par- the parable tells us as well. And it's interesting that it doesn't tell us that he's rich in any deceitful way. It doesn't tell us that he was dishonest or that he gained his riches uh, in any uh, dodgy manner, but rather just that he was Uh, that he had this money and wealth. And again, this is at the core of what this parable is about. It's not just merely the possession of money or possession of wealth, because that is obviously a a danger to to those who have plenty of it. Uh, 
But Christ is also saying that whilst it's difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, as he mentioned elsewhere, its wealth in and of itself is not the problem. It is our attitude towards it. And as such, there is a similar danger to those who maybe consider that they're not wealthy. They don't possess great riches. Maybe they consider, or you consider yourselves, that you are actually poorer than most people. But yet, it is the desire to have wealth, to pursue riches, and to accumulate it that is the danger. And I think 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 to 10, is really helpful in helping us frame our minds on this issue. So I'm just going to read that to you and take, take note of this. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. And listen to this. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So here we see it's not just for those who are rich and those who have wealth. It's for those who desire these things. And I think there's one thing that this is the image and um, what is portrayed in our world at the moment is that these things are desirable. These things are Uh, desirable for us to pursue and to chase in our lives and to spend even our entire lives doing. But the riches note that they don't just trap people into this darkness, into this ruin and destruction. It's also significant that they can be a craving causing some to wander from the faith. So it's that point that I think this is a warning for both the believer and the unbeliever. So whilst we may not see ourselves in the rich purple gear that this uh, guy is wearing, or we may not think that we feast sumptuously for ourselves each day, we do need to search the scriptures and search ourselves when it comes to this. And if we're honest, we do find it easier to spot these things in others, don't we? It's that classic scenario of finding the the speck of dust in your brother's eye where there's there's a log in yours. It's easy to some extent to see maybe how other people spend their wealth, what they wear, what they drive, what house they have, all these sorts of things. It's very easy from afar to judge these things, but we must guard against that attitude. Because actually it can be the case that people can possess these things, but it's not because they desire them. It's not because they pursue them. It's because they have them and they can be giving generously themselves. But let's acknowledge that this affects both rich and the poor, and it is the love or the pursuit of money that is to be guarded against. And there are really kind of two areas that we can stop ourselves right now and examine ourselves and see if this is an issue for us. Our first um, area that we can consider this is what is our attitude to giving to God? Now, I found it helpful. Another minister preaching on a similar passage years ago uh, really just gave a helpful check for us to, to maybe do on ourselves. And we're to ask ourselves, what is our attitude to giving And with God, our starting point could be, do we tithe? Tithing is giving 10% of of our income to God. 
And whilst, yes, that's under the Old Testament um, uh, path, the uh, New Testament actually speaks of us giving sacrificially. So let's just, before we think about do we give sacrificially, let's just think about do we give even the 10%? Do you do that? Do I do that? Do we give our first fruits to the Lord? Or do we wait and see what kind of month it is before we decide what we maybe give to God? But do we give cheerfully to God from what we earn and what we make? Or is there a bit of resentment in what we have to give or give up? A second area we can test ourselves is our attitude to giving to others and to the poor. So do we give, do we help those, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need around the world, do we give to these causes? Or even the people that we come into contact, the people that the Lord places in our path, uh, the people on the street, the people in our neighbourhoods who are in, in need. Again, do we grudgingly give to these things or even avoid them altogether? So it's important thinking of these, even just two examples that can help us examine ourselves, me with you, um, in respect to what we give out of the riches or the wealth or the money that we do possess ourselves. And that's in private and in public. And I'm sure that you will see, and and, and me with you, that there maybe needs to be some uh, retuning or refixing when it comes to our hearts on this matter. That we are to set our, set our minds on the things that are above and not on the things that are below in this world. Not on the things that, that rust and moth can corrupt, but rather to lay up ourselves treasures in heaven. So this passage, it talks about the wealth of this, uh, this rich man in his life. Uh, it talks about his clothing and, 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 and his uh, eating. But we also find out one final thing about this man's life, this rich man's life. And that is that he is a covenant child. Now, how do we know this and what, what does this mean? Well, we see later in the passage that he repeatedly calls out to Father Abraham. He repeatedly uses that phrase, Father, Father Abraham. And Abraham in turn says to him, child. Now, we can take from that that this rich man was a Jew, that he was part of the covenant people of God under the Old Testament. And you'll remember from last week, uh, under the New Testament, the sign of the New Covenant, New Testament, is baptism and water. So if we were to update this parable, in a sense, this would be somebody who is baptised, perhaps, into the church. Their parents perhaps baptised them. They themselves may have baptised their children into the church. They were part of the covenant people of God. And that means that they were blessed in knowing God from a young age. That they were brought up. And that this rich man will have been brought up with the law and the prophets, which we're told about later on. They had those. His brothers had those. So this was a covenant family who have been brought up knowing the word. And similarly today, that may be yourself. You have been brought up in the church. You know the word of God. You may even know the catechisms that we're talking about earlier. You know these things. You've had these privileges. You've been brought up. But here we see the huge privilege that this man had. He has ultimately wasted it completely. So summing up this rich man's life, we see that outwardly he appeared to be a successful person. He had wealth. He was a covenant child. He had been brought up knowing God and what God required of him. But he wasted that. With the wealth he had, he only lived for himself. And we see, and we will see, sorry, in a moment, that this really was 
the ruin of his soul. So that's the life of the rich man. Now let's consider the life of Lazarus. So Lazarus, we find, or we hear in this passage, was a beggar. He was poor. And he just desired even the crumbs that came from the rich man's table. And we see that he was laid at the gate. uh, And we hear that he has sores as well. So maybe that he's not even able to to travel. He had to rely on others to take him and lay him at the gate for, for begging for food. And what's even worse is that we hear that the dogs licked his wounds. And there's kind of two views on this. Some might think that this actually is adding insult to injury. That this is almost uh, makes the situation worse. That he's tortured by this. But others point out that this actually may have been a relief to Lazarus. That slight relief of the dogs licking the wounds. And it actually goes to condemn the rich man even further. Because even the dogs took mercy in a sense on this Lazarus and licked his sores whereas nothing came from the rich man either way we see the rich man showed no care and that Lazarus uh, suffered now I did mention at the start about him being called Lazarus and I do think that there is something uh, of um, significance in this Um, and there's two parts to this one we'll explore now and one, one later on The part that we'll look at now is that names, especially in the Bible, have significance and meaning. And the meaning attached to the name Lazarus means God helps. God helps. Now you may be thinking, having read this narrative, you're thinking, well, that's maybe a bit ironic because you think God helps. You think from the description given of this man that God is helping this man. doesn't look that way. In fact, he appears worse off than anyone else in this parable. How can we say that God is helping Lazarus? Lazarus is a faithful person. He was a believer, yet we see this man of faith suffering. And we can't escape this fact that here we have someone of faith who is suffering. And I don't think it's worth, or it should be glossed over. I think it merits us to stop for a moment In fact, it probably merits a whole sermon in itself about suffering in the lives of believers. But I don't want to just gloss over this just now because I think it's very important. Because no doubt suffering will be a normal part of the Christian life. Jesus tells us that. He says that his disciples, his followers, will face trials, tribulations, persecutions, suffering. It's not a matter of If these things will happen to the Christian. It's a matter of when. And Christ himself even says that we are to take up our cross daily. And follow him. Now as I say this really merits a sermon in and of itself. So we don't have the time today to look into this issue. But we may never know the whys of our suffering in this life. God may reveal it to us. Uh, that we may go through sufferings for all sorts of reasons to to try us to to refine our faith to uh, expose sin in our life to to build our character as Christians to help us know God and his character more uh, it may help us produce um, fruit in our lives that may pre- prepare us for useful service or it may and hopefully we should lead us to make God our all and prepare us for glory 
Because that's what Romans 5, 3, verse, verses 3 and 5 say. That we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I was grateful for a, a brother in the congregation who recently asked us to look at this uh, a book, uh, booklet called... Um, uh, the name of it's gone for me Behind a Frowning Providence I think by John J. Murray um, and I would really encourage you actually, we have some uh, spare copies of that actually it's, it's a very powerful and instructive little booklet only a few pages long that really goes into depth about God's design and sufferings in our lives and whilst we don't have time to go into it at this point we can trust that although Lazarus suffered in his life we know that the Lord has his reasons for this. And it was nothing really compared to the glory that Lazarus would have, or that we will have indeed in eternity with Christ. So I don't want to dismiss the suffering that Lazarus had, nor do I want to discourage those who are believers and who have suffered, or who are suffering just now, or who may, be going, who may go through suffering in their Christian walk. It is important But it is significant that the Lord helps his people through their suffering. Now, what can we conclude from these two lives? Well, we can conclude that our worldly condition is no test of what our state is in the sight of God. So, having riches and wealth does not mean that we have God's favour. And being in poverty does not mean that 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 is a mark of God's displeasure. But rather, we see that this poor man Lazarus, he suffered, yes... But he lived by faith and he walked in the steps of Abraham. But yet we see this rich man, his only desire, he was consumed only with wealth for himself. He was thoughtless to others, self-worldly and dead in his trespasses and sin. And he only wanted these earthly pleasures to serve himself. So those were the lives of these two men. And moving on now to our, our next heading, we'll look at the deaths of these two men will be much more uh, brief about this so the death the first death we have in this parable is the death of Lazarus Lazarus dies first and immediately upon his death we are told that the soul of Lazarus is specially cared for it is cared for because God has sent angels uh, to carry him to Abraham's side and this reminded me of one of the questions from the catechism that we have. Question 37. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? And the answer to that is the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, still being united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. So here is the clear scriptural proof for that question and answer and it also supports the evidence of what we hear in Psalm 116 when the psalmist says precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of the saints we see the care and comfort given to those in Christ in their death and Christ himself even says that he goes to prepare a place for us there's this act of preparation preparing the mansion preparing the rooms that he has for his people And all those who are believers, those who are Christians, those who the Bible calls saints, 
all of us should take comfort from the fact that we should have no fear in death and what it will bring because we have this immediate comfort and into the presence of Christ. And I have my final observation on Lazarus' name here as well. You mentioned earlier the first significance of Lazarus being named is that the name had meaning, that uh, he was in his life, God helped him. But secondly, in his death, I believe this is significant that he is named because all those who are saved and go to glory will have their name in the book of life. Whereas that may not be said and that will not be said of those like the rich man who go to the lostness of hell. But those who are in Christ, those who are saved, their names are written in the book of life. So that's the death of Lazarus. We see this immediate care and comfort for those who are believers. But what about the rich man? The rich man, death comes to him. He can't escape it. No doubt he will have been eating and drinking and faring sumptuously as he did every day. And then suddenly death comes in. And we read that he was buried. It's interesting or notable that Lazarus wasn't buried. He was probably cast somewhere out of the way. But this rich man has made provision for himself for his earthly funeral, no doubt. And there will have been mourners, there will have been uh, probably feasts, there will have been a eulogy which will have talked about all his great accomplishments, how he used to dress so well, how he used to eat so well, how he was the best host, the best banqueter, that his home was, well, as we know, not open to everyone, but open to all those who were like-minded as himself, no doubt. But unlike Lazarus, he has no name. It will have been on his gravestone, perhaps, but that's it. Because no doubt he would be forgotten. And that is the sad and solemn truth of many of those who will be in the lostness of hell. Is that your name, who you were, who you are, doesn't matter anymore. So this, what can we conclude from the deaths of these two guys? Well, one, uh, both death comes to the rich and to the poor. There's no discrimination there. All have sinned and are fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death and that's the same for the rich and for the poor. But Lazarus's bodily wants and his needs all came to an end at his death and we'll see that in eternity he begins what will be a feasting forevermore. But we see shockingly for the rich man at his death all his feasting, all his celebration, all that he did for himself comes to an end. And he will never again be feasting in eternity. So that was the death of both these men. And I'll just move on to our final point now. And that's looking at the eternity uh, of these two men. And Lazarus, very briefly, he joins this banquet scene in heaven. He is at Abraham's side. Abraham, who is the father of the faith, who... He joins and he is comforted by and he joins him at his side and he is in in the company of the faithful. He lacks for nothing at this point. He used to crave the crumbs and now he is feasting forevermore. So this picture we have is of rest and communion with the saints for those who go to heaven. And remember for the Christian now, Whilst Lazarus went to the side of Abraham, for the Christian, we have the wonderful and beautiful image that we go straight into the presence of Christ. 
and that this shows really from start to end God caring and watching over his people both in their lives and their death but then also providing for them in eternity and now finally we come to the rich man in eternity well Christ tells us plainly that immediately on his death the rich man lifts his eyes and he is in hell he is in torment he is in anguish so in life he would feast sumptuously he would celebrate but now in eternity he is just longing for a drop of water to help him in his torment now the doctrine of of hell is very difficult for people to understand and accept and even for Christians it is difficult and for some churches and for some people the attitude is actually just makes us too uncomfortable we just don't deal with it or we just don't mention it but Christ talks about hell and he talks about hell in this passage here and I'm here to preach what Christ preaches and that is that hell is real and in various parts of the gospel Christ describes what hell is like he says it is an unquenchable fire where the worm does not die where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth where there is anguish where there is regret where there is a place of outer darkness and here we have in this parable it's called a place of eternal torment now I remember a a minister trying to help us with an illustration before and it's always stuck with me he said if you could imagine a time in your life where you have been in uh, constant pain and no relief sort of pain that you might feel with migraines or toothaches or backaches or, or something that you've experienced in your life where there has been this constant pain and you have longed for relief and in some way you know that relief will come whether it be medication or something or help you will get relief from that pain and it will be over but actually for this rich man there will be no such relief nothing not even that drop of water and some commentators say that there are few more awful passages in in perhaps the whole of scripture than this but they also say we are to remember that the lips who spoke this terrifying truth comes from the same person who delights in mercy and that's Christ you see we worship God we worship a God of justice sin has to be dealt with and as I mentioned earlier all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death so our default position is that we are bound for hell unless our sins are dealt with and there's only one way to really satisfy the wrath of God and the wrath of God, you may think, don't, well, don't think that it is unjust or unfair in any way. The wrath of God is always what is the appropriate response of a holy, just and loving God to the presence of sin. It has to be dealt with. If it wasn't, then we would not have a just God. But we do have a just God. But it is tempered with mercy. And either your sins are covered by Christ or they're not. You are either found in Christ or you are lost. There's no middle ground. And this makes it clear as we close and think of this. There's a chasm between these two men. That's what Abraham says. And he says to this rich man, child, remember. And I think that phrase, as compassionate as it sounds, 
I think is also one of the most horrible thoughts that we could have for this rich man because it encapsulates one of the worst things I think about hell one of our church fathers says that hell is nothing more than the truth known too late and that phrase remember will be something that people who are lost in eternity will be doing for eternity remembering as this rich man does remembering the law and the prophets and all that was spoken to him and all that was told to him and for us today those who will be remembering being brought up as a covenant child in the church knowing God knowing what we are to believe concerning God and what God requires of us remembering every time that we sat perhaps even in this church or listened online to a sermon where the gospel was preached and proclaimed and a the message of salvation made clear to you but each time you leave rejecting it you see this remembering there's no doubt that there will be people in eternity remembering all these times in their lives where they could have, should have accepted the offer of salvation and if there's one thing that I would hate for this sermon to be would be something that someone in here remembers in eternity for the wrong reason and if we look back at this rich man he now seems resigned to the fact that he cannot pass from one to the other but he desires that his brothers will be saved and he makes this plea for for um, Lazarus to return from, from the grave but Abraham tells the rich, uh, the rich man that no that's not going to happen because the law and the prophets were sufficient and is sufficient for salvation and for us as well not only do we have the law and the prophets we have the whole of scripture we have the gospels we have the accounts of the early church we have 2,000 years of testimonies of the saints speaking to the salvation that is offered in the gospel now if you're sitting here thinking but I just need one more thing there needs to be something else just as these people wanted just as this rich man wanted Lazarus to be raised from the dead the thing is that Christ himself raised from the dead and yet some still do not believe but Christ tells us here clearly that scripture contains all that we need to know in order to be saved and I just want to close with one short uh, passage from J.C. Ryle. I don't believe that I can do it or rephrase it any better myself. So I'm just going to, to quote this. Because it's really important about scripture containing everything that we need to be saved. J.C. Ryle says, The principle laid down in these, world, these words is of deep importance. The scripture contains all that we need to know in order to be saved and a messenger from the world beyond the grave could add nothing to them. It is not more evidence that is wanted in order to make men and women repent, but it is more heart and the will to make use of what they already know. The dead could tell us nothing more than the Bible contains if they rose from the graves to instruct us. After the first novelty of their testimony was worn away, we should care no more for their words than for the words of any other. But this wretched waiting for something which we have not and the neglect of what we have is the ruin of thousands of souls 
faith, simple faith in the scriptures which we already possess is the first thing needful to salvation. The man or woman who has the Bible and can read it and yet waits for more evidence before he becomes a decided Christian is deceiving himself unless he awakens from this delusion he will die in his sins and that's a solemn thought there and I just hope that doesn't describe anyone here today waiting for something else you have the law, you have the prophets you have the scriptures, you have the gospel you have the testimony of the saints you probably even have the testimony of those in your own family who have prayed for you and who have shown you and have revealed to you the things of God from an early age and you've heard the gospel regularly and you've heard it again today so you must decide who are you to serve yourself, money, this world or do you serve God there is no neutral or middle ground there is that chasm that is between eternity and which side of that chasm will you find yourself on Will you be lost in hell? Or will you be found in Christ? In glory with our Saviour? Amen. May God bless these thoughts to us. We're going to conclude by singing the verses, uh, the concluding verse of Psalm 73a. And this is in the Sing Psalms. Psalm 73a. Yet I remain with you continually. By my right hand you hold me as my guide. You'll lead me with your counsel to the end and take me into glory to abide. And I hope and pray that that is the the prayer and that can be said of everyone in here today. And especially the last stanza where it talks about those who are afar from you will be cut down and those who are unfaithful you destroy. That is a solemn end to this rich man. But for you... It can be that you draw near to God and shelter in God because your your deeds, O Lord, I will recount with joy. There's no reason to be on a road of destruction today, but there is every reason for us to be joyful and to rejoice in the gospel. So let's sing these remaining stanzas to God's praise.
close in prayer. Heavenly Father and Almighty God, we thank you that your word contains all that we need to know regarding salvation. And we're thankful, Lord, that your word and you yourself spoke truth so clearly to those who would hear it in your time. And that those truths speak just as clearly today. And we pray that if anything be taken away from this message today, it is the need of you as our Redeemer and as our Saviour. Take away anything else that was said that was not profitable for us. May we be left just thinking of the sweet, sweet gospel of salvation, which is open to each and every one of us. And may we all be found in eternity with you to abide. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now 